Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, battling a little bit of a head cold today. So we'll get right to it with my guest, Fred Lucas. This was recorded a while back, so no head cold in this podcast. But anyways, uh, Fred Lucas's new book is The Myth of Voter Suppression. We talk about that in a responsible way, I hope. He is, Fred is, the chief news correspondent and manager Correspondent and manager of the investigative reporting project, The Daily Signal. Um, and so we try to talk about this topic, which is controversial, obviously, and a hot button voter suppression. So I hope you enjoy that. Let's get to Fred. Fred, welcome to the War Room. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, so we have what can only be described as a controversial topic today. As I mentioned in the introduction, a book on voter suppression, which is a hot button issue, not today september 16th when we're sitting here but we'll be every day leading up to the midterms and then every and then two years again and every time there's an election this topic of voter suppression um comes up um and so let me have you define the term so we can make sure we're talking about the same thing before we move forward so when you say voter suppression what does that mean um in the book the myth of voter suppression uh i I define voter suppression is, as preventing uh, eligible voters from being able to cast their vote. Um, and I should note that the U.S. Code uh, does not, and anywhere uh, federal law does not mention the word voter suppression. Um, and the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act, which has been a smashing success, uh, outlaws vote denial vote dilution, and uh, voter intimidation. Uh, Voter suppression is largely a sort of a political focus group term, which has been used a lot in the recent decade to um, sort of lump in uh, legal activity like voter ID laws and other election integrity measures uh, and sort of conflate that with the old racist Jim Crow laws that really were voter suppression. Okay, so I can, let me, let me go through these three terms here. So we said, um, the definition is preventing an eligible voter from voting. Okay, and then you're referencing the 1965 law. Uh, you said denial, delusion, and, and intimidation. So denial, I'm assuming means I'm an eligible, eligible voter. I go up there and for no legitimate reason, so I've got a white shirt on or a purple shirt on or whatever. They say, hey, sorry, bud, you can't vote. So no good reason they kick me out. Intimidation is perhaps they have a guy with the AK-47 saying, you know, if you go here and vote, I'm going to shoot you. Delusion, what does that mean? Delusion would be uh, finding some way of making votes count less or, um, and the, the, this is somehow sometimes litigated uh, when you have gerrymandering issues. Uh, mm-hmm. Courts will review whether there was a reasonable aspect of how district lines are drawn. Uh, and, and so forth. I mean, there, there, there have been there have been issues with uh, gerrymandering, and both parties seek advantage in, with gerrymandering now when they draw right. legislative districts. But um, courts have usually worked out whether these were unreasonable um, in terms of uh, how they might try to give an advantage to one party, and so forth. So, so dilution is largely based on gerrymandering. Um, it can be based on some other things. If if they if if a district is drawn in an area based purely on um, economics or based purely on whether voter turnout is is high in that type of area. Okay, so voter suppression then would seem to be a more of a catch-all term that's not really definable. Um, it could be delusion, intimidation, denial, depending on how you're using it, but it's not really a legal term, um, but more of a broad term. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, right, right, right. It, it's a broad term, kind of meant to be an umbrella for these. Um, and in some cases, um, I think largely, uh, very often it's, it's used as a bludgeon against laws that are popular, like voter ID. Um, which is pretty popular among the majority of the public across demographics. We, we've seen polls that show about 80% support showing an ID, an ID to vote that because I think it makes sense to people. 
Yeah, and, and that's a, you know, it's one of those things to where, let's talk about ID for, for a second. Um, you know, I have a driver's license, of course, so does my wife. My son will be 15, so he'll be getting a permit um, quite soon. And I got a passport. I'm not sure how I feel about being required by the law to carry identification on me at all times. I've, I've actually had some problems with, with that, that mentality. However, society right now seems to believe that that's how we should operate. Um, and that's how you should have access to things like driving or purchasing alcohol or cigarettes, um, lottery tickets. I'm sure there's other guns, whatever, um, whatever the, the case would be. There's certain things that require this form of identification. Why is it that it's controversial when it comes to voting? Well, I think what, well, let, let me give a, two answers. Um, they're, they're not contradictory at all, but I, I think they both apply here. Uh, one, I think some sincere people uh, believe, uh, generally believe that it is an obstacle to voting, that uh, it's a restriction on voting in some ways. Um, to have be required to show an ID before exercising a constitutional right. And, and real quick for you, me further, technically it is an obstacle, right? So, so before we move further, like having to have your ID to purchase alcohol, alcohol is an obstacle. It doesn't mean it's a bad obstacle per se, but it is technically an obstacle, right? It is. Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's an obstacle. Um, I, I would add uh, buying a firearm is a constitutional right. Right. Um, Getting a marriage license is, or getting married is a constitutional right. You have to have an ID to get married. Uh, uh, freedom of assembly is a constitutional right. You you have to, uh, uh, if, but if you had wanted to do a parade or something like that down Main Street mm -hmm. in those towns, you would need a permit with the city, which would require ID somewhere along the way. Um, so there are a lot of constitutional rights uh, that require some sort form of ID and mm -hmm. and. That's kind of laid out in the in in the book as well. Um, a, a another I think is a more nefarious one, but I, I I think is actually out there, and I think this is something that's been going on since the beginning of the country, and it happens in all democracies. Is people want to make it easier to cheat in elections, and if if there's no safeguard there, um, it is would be easier to commit voter fraud. And that's a bipartisan take, right? <laughs> both both sides um, at various times would like to cheat. Yeah, 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 and yeah, and this book lays this out uh, very, uh, very methodically. Actually, um, the book is definitely it's harder on the Democrats uh, be, because uh, it does they have been uh, certainly recently uh, more opposed to these uh, election reform laws, sure. whereas Republicans are passing them. But it often depends on whose ox is being gored. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I would bring up that uh, going back to 2005, uh, it was in the wake of, it was after the 2000 election mess in Florida. Uh, there was a broad bipartisan uh, election reform commission uh, known as the Carter-Baker Commission for Jimmy Carter and James Baker. Um, they put out this big bipartisan set of recommendations. Uh, a big one was um, they called for national voter ID. Uh, it's been pretty much a state thing. And um, I, I think there's more consensus to have states run their elections for the most part. And, and, and they also called for um, sort of restricting a little bit of um, mail-in balloting because they thought that there were a lot of avenues there for fraud. Uh, right now, we, 35 states, the, the majority of states have voter ID laws, um, but, but at the same time, we are moving toward a, a case where mail-in balloting is going to be outpacing, or already did in 2020, but I think even in a non-pandemic era, we'll be outpacing in-person voting. Yeah, and the reason that I want to go through these um, slowly is because actually uh, the day we're recording this, I'm releasing my interview with Noam Chomsky, who's big, you know, big linguist and all this stuff. And so it's, when you talk to him, it's funny how he, he points out maybe some contradictions in the way things are, are phrased. And so um, when we, so like when, for instance, if this was Fox news or MSNBC, depending on which side of the, the spectrum you're on, on uh, cable news. Um, and they said, 
voter ID laws. And then they said something like, well, it is an obstacle, right? So they might trump that like, oh my gosh, this is, it's an obstacle. How can it be an obstacle? What are you? And so for me, it's like, well, okay, there's nothing wrong with admitting that in this case, if you're for voter ID, that it, that it is an obstacle, but the context of the obstacle is similar to obstacle for this, 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 and this. Then the question actually is, should we require the ID for all of these things, some of these things, or none of these things? And we don't have those type of discussions in the U.S. We just say, oh, it's an obstacle. And then people either think it's great or it's the worst thing in the world. And there's no actual nuance to why we're using the word obstacle, what that might mean, and the implications of that. And so to me, that's that's the frustrating thing about this discussion is, you know, when I'm when you talk about voter ID, I have concerns about IDs in general. Um, it would seem, though, if we required to, you know, to, to vote, to cast a vote, that I can see that's a good, a good, good use case for one, um, for sure. Um, but it's not as if this is an imaginary obstacle only for voting. It's for all kinds of things that we've, as a society, have agreed upon. Hey, we like this obstacle um, for these certain activities. And so voting is not unique, is, is the larger point at hand. Um, the question is, should it be for voting or not? And so to, to that, my question would be, um, is, is it your opinion? Um, so I think me and you both agree that, that some form of ID to vote needs to be there uh, just because it's an important thing. Um, so if we're going to vote, we should probably be able to identify who's voted, not necessarily capture how they voted per se uh, and publish that publicly, but but who who did show up to vote and is it the right person? With that being said, what would you say to someone who goes, okay, well, you know, Bob here is um, low income, doesn't have an ID, doesn't use an ID regularly. Um, you know, how do you justify preventing him from voting because he doesn't have an ID? Well, most... I, I think this is the case with all 35 states. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that that all provide free ID, uh, particularly when, when it's for voting. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, in some cases, you do have to pay for uh, a driver's license at the DMV, uh, but um, driving is not a right. It's, it's right. a privilege, as we learned in driver's ed class in high school. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I... I, I States will provide some sort of free ID card. And, and importantly, I, I think I would want to add to what we've seen in uh, about two dozen states in 2021 passed uh, election reforms that expanded voter ID requirements uh, to absentee balloting. Um, that just required people add a either the last four digits of their social security number or a number from their state ID card, which would have, which would be their driver's license number or something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if, if, if I could even, I, I guess, elaborate a little bit, because I, I like the point you were making about an obstacle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, there was a time in America when you didn't have to register to vote. Uh, and there was a massive, massive election fraud and in, in a past era, there, I mean, people talk about voter fraud. Yes, the book explains uh, that voter fraud is very real and it is a problem. It's nothing like the problem that it used to be back in the 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, voter registration was considered a reform at one point uh, to prevent voter fraud. A secret ballot uh, didn't come along until the late 1800s. That was considered a reform to uh, to prevent fraud or intimidation. Um, so so I, there, there's a lot of things that we take for granted today that might be viewed as obstacles. Um, uh, when the secret ballot was actually, uh, and the myth of voter suppression in my book actually gives the, the history of the secret ballot in America. That was very controversial at the time. Um, there were as largely uh, an argument made by some of these big uh, political machines that were fairly corrupt themselves, so, so they had an agenda, but but they argue that this is a, a disproportionately impacts uh, poor people and un, uneducated people because there were pretty high illiteracy rates in the 1800s. And when you, um, when people had to go behind the curtain with a ballot uh, and a menu of candidates, as opposed to ha- handing in a, either handing in a color-coded ba- ballot that were distributed by the parties, uh, or voice voting, which is how elections were done before the secret ballot. Uh, 
it, it, the argument went that uh, that that was unfair, that that was going to disproportionately impact the poor uh, and the voter suppression. As it turned out, that was not a big problem. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I so I think you could say today. It's an obstacle to have to register to vote before you vote. And you could even say that when you if you show up for, to vote at the location, it is an obstacle to have to check in at a table mm -hmm. and give them have them check off your name uh, right. before going into the booth. It might be easier just go straight into the booth and vote. But I mean, you, you have to have these. Those are restrictions and obstacles, but they're rash if, if you know. To have a functioning republic, uh, you have to have some type of acceptable restrictions in place to ensure you have uh, an integrity, yeah, an, an honest election. Right, right. And so that's you know that's um, that that's exactly the point. Which is, if we so the question is, should there be any restrictions to voting? And if you say yes, then the question is, is this where do we draw the line and why? Um, and so th those are just it's it's you know. Um, it's just frustrating for me because these are simple conversations to have. Maybe we don't agree on where these lines are drawn, but these concepts are not not um, not crazy. These are just normal functions of life. But yet, um, in popular uh, corporate press, you know, to, to have a discussion like this is like, oh, you can't talk about it because that's not sensationalizing. To me, that's 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 boring. I want to talk about the secret ballot though because I actually participated in a recent election that was not a secret ballot, and I was quite I was quite surprised. Um, that, to do this um and so um and by that i mean you signed you signed your name to the ballot um and so they know the people who are collecting the, the votes knew who you voted for um and going through that process i was like hmm okay here, here are my thoughts at the time and so i'm curious the arguments about the secret ballot and, and what your thoughts are because my thoughts was okay if i vote the way i suspect the people uh, would prefer me to vote um that would probably garner me favor um if i'd vote against them it could be held against me then, then the question is, is well, why do you want to know the way that I voted, particularly because this was a pretty confined um, group. So there wasn't having voter fraud in this case would have been extremely unlikely just because uh, the, the the nature of the setup. Um, but but going through that, I was just kind of, kind of hmm, this is interesting that that they would like for me to assign it. And, and part of me felt like, OK, I'm I'm OK in this context of you knowing what I'm voting for. Um, however, it probably yeah. Three years from now, I might go. Oh man, you guys are still <laughs> so upset about that. And, and I have no idea. No one said anything one way or another, and so I, I have no idea. I'm just. But it was that was kind of my first time that I can remember voting in a ballot where you signed your name to it, and you know that the people collecting it would 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 have access to how you voted, good, bad, or indifferent. They're gonna have access to it. Um, so what was that process like historically? Um, you said the book we we used to not have the secret ballots. We kind of had some arguments for it. Um, what were the arguments for the non-secret ballot? And people, are people advocating for it today at a popular level? At a popular level, yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah. I, I I actually explain in the book the myth of voter suppression. I, I explain that um, there there was a point um, really, and throughout the early 1800s, um, you had voice voting was a very common thing. People would gather in town halls, and at, even yeah, you know, I mean, for uh, they'd show up at their precinct uh, and voice vote for whether it was a governor's race or, or whatever uh and and those votes would be tallied sometimes just based on voice and and one, one thing i mentioned is that for all those people who uh are worried about what their relatives will <laughs> worry about talking politics at thanksgiving dinner or at the neighborhood cookout for being judged for having the quote-unquote wrong opinion about something uh, just imagine what that might have been like in those days when you had to show up and the whole area, uh, whole neighborhood or community you lived in knew exactly how you voted. So, so that was clearly open for voter intimidation and and uh, you you know potentially fraud or or someone could be bullied or something before casting the vote or fear some sort of repercussions. Uh, if they didn't vote the quote unquote right way uh, for their neighbors to see. Um, this advanced a little bit more later because you had the parties would hand out uh, these color-coded ballots and uh, they, they'd be different colors for different 
states and regions. But uh, I mean, just imagine today it would probably be a red ballot for Republicans and a blue ballot for Democrats. So just we talk about red states and blue states. Um, so uh, and oftentimes they would drop their ballots into a, a clear glass bowl. So people would often know who's going to be winning the race. I mean, the, the days before you had uh, exit polls, uh, people would just look in the clear uh, clear fishbowl to see what color, color ballots were winning. Um, but, you know, as, as we moved forward, um, it, it was actually Australia actually pioneered the secret ballot uh, among among democracies. And so we ended up having, uh, when countries adopted the secret ballot, they initially called it the Australian ballot system. And it was in uh, 1871, California sort of went partially uh, towards secret ballots, but not all the way. Um, and uh, in 1888, um, it was Massachusetts was the first uh, state to uh, adopt secret ballots statewide. Uh, before that, you'd had some some er some areas adopting them uh, within with cities jurisdictions, uh, but not until 1888 was Massachusetts the first one to actually make it statewide. And then from there, it just became a pretty common thing. Oh, okay. So as you talk through that, um, there's obviously. A lot of problems if you got red and blue or whatever the, the <laughs> things are there. You can you can kind of tell. Oh boy, this is right. this is going against us, and so that might dissuade people from voting who yeah. they were vote for or uh, yeah. any of them. But what if someone said, you but, know, but, but those red and blue ballots that's probably better than having to shout your vote. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it evolved over time. Right. 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 Especially during a contentious election, I'm sure. Um, but maybe someone might say, let me just ask this to you before we move on. If someone said, well, you know, at least with the with the unsecret ballot, the open ballot, or however you want to phrase that term, um, you could go back and, and easily uh, track easier who voted for who. So what would you say to that? Like, maybe that's a better system because um, you have some fear and intimidation, but it's oh, it's quite clear who actually voted for who, and you could verify that um, a lot faster. Oh, oh, you mean if there was some sort of need for a recount or something? Along yeah, yeah, like so, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess in the uh, election that, that, that you were talking about that, that at least I'd be able to go back and verify everyone's vote um yeah uh i i guess i can see that argument i i think a better argument for being able to verify is and this is something that groups on both the right and the left support and that is allowing some sort of a paper receipt mm -hmm. uh that people can print off after you're you're at a an electronic voting machine and cast and you know, cast your votes, uh, then it'll print off some sort of little. So if there is ever is such a case, then that person can bring in their receipt and, and show how it was voted. I, I yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's a, um, I think that's a much better argument. And I, I, I think so few elections are that close. Mm -hmm. uh, so few, we have so few Bush Gore type elections. Right. Uh, I mean, they're out there and, and, and but I'm, but I mean, they're they're rarely so far down to the wire that a basic recount uh, won't won't settle it uh, after a maybe a even a month. I mean, I, I think you had like a a long result, um, a lot of counting recently at a Senate primary in New Hampshire, uh, and, and they just got a winner after kind of a drawn out process. But more times than not, and, and the yeah, same thing happened in Pennsylvania earlier when Dr. Oz won his primary. I, I think it took a few days to uh, assemble that all together and, and figure out who won. But more times than not, they get it right. Well, and the other problem I would as you as you're talking there is, you know, um, we vote on September 16th. Um, something happens, uh, and you know, someone calls me up and says, Hey, did you vote for this person? Like in, in a large election, like, oh no, the machine must have recorded it wrong. So you, you could even see there's there's problems with the verification. So essentially, so far, I think we've we've kind of agreed that you need a system that that guarantees that the person that who claims to be voting is voting, um, mm -hmm. and that we record that information accurately. And then beyond that, you could have the receipt, like you say. Um, of course, the person could then claim, you know, I didn't mean to or this is wrong or, or, or whatever, but, but essentially those two things seem to be the, um, 
the supreme, if you will, the hierarchy, the top of the hierarchy that we have to have to have elections that we can trust. We make sure the people are who they say they are and that we collect their vote in a proper way and store it, obviously, in a proper way and then and count it, all, that whole process. Is that a fair assessment so far? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And um, I mean, there, there have been cases where uh, I, I know here in Virginia, um, there, there were cases where people showed up uh, at polling places uh, and said that they were uh, told that they had already voted. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that this has happened more so in places like California, where there's no voter ID laws. Uh, we've had these complaints. Uh, so, so I'm that that I think is like probably a good reason. Some places don't. You you have sort of more blue areas within a red state, oftentimes, and they won't enforce a a voter ID law, but um, for for the most part, I think it's best to have those in place and best to make sure that the people, yeah, that we know who's voting. Yeah. So with that being said, we kind of spent some time on time, uh, time laying a foundation there. So what is the problem today? Like why this, what we've said there doesn't seem to be um, unreasonable, uh, too much of an ask. It seems to be a relatively low bar to access. Um, why again now is this controversial? Who's making the complaints and what are they saying? And is there some not we, we've covered kind of some superficial or some potential legit concerns, but is there any real there there that you've found like, oh my gosh, this is real voter suppression, denial, delusion, etc., that's happening and we should address, or is there no widespread cases of this? There are no widespread cases of voter suppression. Uh, in America, it is very easy to register to vote, and it is very easy to vote. Um, and I think the goal of Americans overwhelmingly is to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. And uh, by and large, that's, that's what most of the uh, of our election laws have done. And uh, a lot of, as I mentioned, about two two dozen states passed election reforms in 2021, they largely did three things. They expanded voter ID to absentee ballots. Um, they put restrictions on ballot harvesting and they uh, tried to improve the accuracy of voter registration lists. Uh, and uh, those opponents of these laws uh, use rhetoric that I thought was pretty outrageous, actually we called it Jim Crow 2.0. That was a uh, President Biden even used that term. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, used that term. Uh, and uh, it just became sort of a, um, a catchy phrase. Um, I mean, one thing, I, I, I think there's certain things you shouldn't compare current events to uh, and, unless they're really, really horrible. Uh, and Jim Crow was a horrible, horrible time in America. Um, and I mean, it was basically an apartheid regime uh, in Southern states. And um, to, to try to compare it to voter ID laws to that, I, I think was really outrageous. Yeah, and that's, I think, the, the frustration around this conversation that I'm talking about, which is um, everything in American politics is sensationalized and there's not a lot of actual questions being asked. So going back to the 2020 elections, um, one of the arguments was, I would, I want to vote. It's important for me to vote. Um, however, I don't want to catch coronavirus. And so therefore, I want to vote by mail. Um, it would seem based upon what we said so far that when you introduce the vote by mail component, you potentially, potentially, I say, increase the odds of voter fraud. Is that a true? Uh, is that true or false? That's true. Um, and I, I think uh, that's that was part of the response to why, um, well, foreseeing that uh, vote by mail is going to be outpacing in-person voting. Uh, that's why these laws were expanded to uh, mail-in ballots. And um, and yeah, so that's and I those were largely popular. I I I think in some cases people. Some of the polling people get asked about, were asked about such and such laws. Sometimes the states of, of Georgia got a lot of attention, the state of Texas. Um, and uh, people were initially asked about it and they, 
they heard all these like really bomb throwing rhetoric about the laws and they sort of a knee jerk. Uh, well, no, I don't support that law. But then when they were asked in polls, well, do you support this? Do you support this? Do you? And so, oh, yes, I support I support voter ID for absentee balloting. I support um, making sure we have more accurate lists. Then there were there were for the items within the law. So I I, I think there was um sometimes a disconnect as in terms of knowing what was in the law and what people were the kind of rhetoric people were hearing about. Is there a way to vote by mail effectively, safely? Um, you know that you can do it and ensure that the right person has voted and their vote will be counted accurately. And let me maybe step back. I'm not saying vote by mail. Um, vote by mail would be one option. Is there a way to vote without having go going to a polling place that you can accomplish that? So any other method that you're aware of? Oh, beyond voting by mail. Yeah, uh, so voting well, by mail. So if someone, so the argument for the coronavirus was they didn't want to go stand in line to catch COVID, so they yeah, wanted to vote right. by mail. And so my question is, okay, we can say either vote by mail might, might be a viable option somehow, or vote by cell phone, vote by computer, vote by telephone. I I don't know. Is there is there some other method that we? I uh, I I do not believe that the um, that we have advanced or secure enough technology for that yet. Um, I I mean, I hackers are very clever. We see. Uh, I, I, we worry about Russian interference now uh, because Russians were buying Facebook ads uh, in 2016 and that turned into a massive scandal. Like they, they were hacking uh, the DNC and so forth. I mean, I imagine if you had voting by mail, I think that would be a, a new and really dangerous target for hackers. Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that that won't happen. I think maybe... I think it's maybe 20, 30 years away before we have secure enough technology. I mean, I, I realize I, I I buy most of the things I shop for online now. And, and I realize there, there was a time 20 years ago, people thought that, oh, I, I would never put my credit card on the internet. Uh, so, so, but, but I, I still think we're uh, in terms of voting, uh, but I, I, at the same time, people still get their uh, credit cards uh, hacked into on the internet. So I, I, I think you, you could definitely have a hacked election um, if you allowed people to, you know, if, if you moved voting online. And I would love to just flip my iPhone out and be able to vote, but I, I don't think it would. Uh, I don't. So I I long for that day when it is secure, but uh, I wouldn't trust it if, if we tried to implement that type of voting now. OK, so you said this is a problem, um, obviously. Uh, the most re so the last two elections let's go through them you know in 2016 you brought up the the russian aspect uh in 2020 we had vote by mail uh mm -hmm. in both elections we had claims from both parties that something bad happened and the, the the election um you know wasn't legitimate and was you know fraud happened this and the other um different claims but at the core it was about votes right so the russians are meddling potentially and then it went to facebook ads only and you know trump's trump's thing with uh mailing voting and, and also so how do we separate these two elections from your argument um in what valid claims should we take from those two those two elections and what concerns and and changes should we implement um yeah good question i i i do have a chapter on the 2020 election, just um, looking back at the most recent, and and but in that chapter, I get into the 2016 election too. I, I referenced that, and um, just basically, I, uh, both in both elections, um, you did have candidates who, and and I, I think much of the public. Um, that did not accept the results of those elections. Uh, Hillary Clinton, um, I would give her credit. She did concede the race, uh, but she did say for years that the election was stolen. And there was demonstrably uh, Russian interference in the campaign in the sense that they hacked into the DNC database, that they... Uh, had operatives buying up Facebook ads that were spreading misinformation and so forth. Um, but no one had ever said, and there was never any proof that they somehow changed voting. Um, in fact, that's not really possible because we have a really decentralized voting system. Uh, and and that, that's something that um, 
some of the Trump supporters, I think, forgot after 2020 because one of the arguments that flew out there was that somehow the voting machines got hacked and by Venezuela or China. Uh, and and we saw some of the same thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I, I, I think that after 2016, a Democrats or a Hillary Clinton supporter would say, well, the election was stolen by the Russians. Uh, and people I were I was friendly with, I, I would ask, well, what's the proof or evidence of that, that we had the wrong result of the election? And they would often just say, well, I just think it's obvious. And, and then after 2020, um, there are Trump supporters that pretty much say the same thing, that, that the election was stolen. Uh, when you ask for absolute proof of that, that we didn't get the, the result uh, correct, then um, sometimes their response is, well, I just think it's obvious. Uh, so I, I, I think you're always going to have a little bit of that. Um, I mean, you, you could even look between it. It's the local level, too, or the state level with uh, Stacey Abrams never conceded that she, she lost the race. She conceded that she would not be. She said she uh, admitted, acknowledged that she would not be governor, but she did not concede that she lost the uh, Georgia election in 2018. Um, and she's largely saying the same thing now as a candidate in 2022. So if she does not win, we pretty well know what she's going to say after November. So I, I, I think we've been sort of on an escalator uh, of the other side not accepting defeat. I, I think that probably started back in 2000 uh, with the Bush-Gore election. I think that might be the third time I've mentioned Bush-Gore in the talk, but uh, with the Bush-Gore election, and that was sort of unlike anything Americans had really lived through at that time. Uh, and that that went on. We, people genuinely did not know who would come out the winner in that for a while. And um, and I think the Democrats felt uh, like they were cheated in that case. Uh, and I think you could probably understand. I think Republicans, if, if the circumstances had gone the exact same way, Republicans probably would have felt cheated. Uh, I think the bigger problem was by 2004, Bush clearly beat John Kerry, uh, yet you had a lot of Democrats, uh, there were House Democrats pushing these theories about Diebold, uh, I think that was the name of the company, uh, Diebold voting machines in Ohio were rigged for Bush. There was, um, there was a challenge made uh, by House Democrats uh, uh, opposing the certification of George W. Bush as president. Uh, and, and to, in 2005. And then uh, you did have that's one of the rare times that you had a Senate sponsor that was Barbara Boxer. So um, that was, you didn't have a riot that year like you did in 2021, thankfully. But uh, but that you, you had the similar situation where uh, the election outcome was being challenged uh, in Congress uh, the, or the certification was being challenged in Congress. So, uh, I mean, we, we've had this kind of buildup for a while now, and hopefully it does not get any worse than January 6th. But I, I, I think the important thing to focus here is that we want people to trust the outcome. And democracy is dependent on consent of the loser. Um, and we want to see more of that. We want to see people being able to concede. And Maybe it's, it's very rare that Richard Nixon's ever viewed as an example, but Richard Nixon thought he got hosed in the 1960 election, but he thought it would be, uh, it would traumatize the country uh, if there was a prolonged challenge, particularly that's when the Cold War was revving up. Uh, so, um, and getting back to voter ID laws, um, you, you can go back to 2006, 2008, when these laws started getting popular in states, there was all kinds of hand-wringing, people saying these laws are suppression. Uh, if, if you do this, people won't be able to vote. In nearly every case, every time a state passed voter ID laws, the, the turnout, percentage-wise, uh, grew, sometimes markedly. Uh, 
there, there was never any evidence that voter ID laws suppress voting. Uh, and, and we saw the same thing in this last round of, of elections. Um, if, if, if I can talk a, a little bit about these, uh, the primaries um, in 2022. Um, if you look at the 19 states or so that, that had major election reforms, uh, and these were the states that uh, people like Stacey Abrams, people like President Biden uh, warned were Jim Crow 2.0. Uh, Georgia was the most attacked one. They, uh, um, if you look at the 2022 primary and compare that to the last non-presidential primary, that was in 2018, and there, that's a Presidential years always get a higher turnout than non-presidential years, but there was a 168% increase in voter turnout in 2022 compared to 2018. Iowa was attacked uh, for its election reform laws. Um, Iowa had a 123% increase in 2022 in its 2022 primary compared to 2018. Um, Similarly, in Texas, there were 400,000 more voters that showed up to cast ballots in 2022 uh, compared to 2018 for the primary. And I think we're going to see similar numbers coming in the general. I think it's going to be even bigger because, um, or, yeah, I mean, just because general elections always attract more voters. But just historically, I, I, I think that's reflective that people feel more comfortable when these laws are in place, whether it's voter ID, whether it's a law saying that the voter registration rolls are going to be um, more accurate, or whether it's um, restrictions on ballot parts. Okay, so you covered a lot of ground there. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I need to stop talking. No, 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 it's good, it's good. That's, that's good. It's, um, so let's go, back to, let's go back to 2000 real quick, because... I was in high school in 2000 um, when that election was going on. I, I remember it. I remember the, obviously, from my perspective of the world, what was going on and, um, you know, who I wanted to win and who my teachers wanted to win and kind of that that, that period of time. Um, I think the lesson that, that I've taken away from 2000 um, would be that it was, it should have been an awakening that perhaps we aren't necessarily going through this method of voting and taking it as seriously as we should be. And when these close elections come up, then we start to raise all these questions. And you know, what, what do you think uh, Bush should have went forward or Gore or whatever? I mean, ancient history now. But had, I don't think the country really dealt with the issues in Florida. Um, maybe I know Florida made some reforms, but the country I don't think really dealt with the issues at large. It was it was a lot of hurt feelings and you know posturing and stuff like this. And the same thing after 2016 and the same thing I said for 2020 is that we're not, we're not really, I mean, there are tweaks that are being made and things that are being uh, pushed forth by uh, the, the right or the left, depending on the situation, but, but we're not actually dealing with the substance of the argument. Which, and to me, that's the thing where it's going to be hard to fix this problem um, because we're, there's no substance to these conversations, it seems, or rare. And I know I brought that up a few times now, but to me, that, that's the overarching thing with all this stuff you're talking about is, you know, in 2016, yes, Hillary did concede, but then, you know, everything was a Russian asset for the next, you know, three years, basically. Um, you know, everyone was, a, I was a Russian. I didn't know it. Um, I, so, yeah, I, I, I did go on Russian TV, so I can't, I can't deny talking about Epstein. So I can't, I can't deny that. But you colluded, right? Yeah, I colluded. You know, and that's a word. Like, what does that word even mean? You colluded with the Russians. And, you know, and so we throw out these terms. And, and so is there real progress being made by anyone in this area or is it just a bunch of posturing to get votes from both sides uh, i mean i i think for the most part the i i believe that there was progress uh, made it's we're not where we need to be um in terms of but i i think that we did move the ball in favor of election integrity without um any real uh, like the obstacles I, without any, putting any real obstacles in the place of people or restricting voting and 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 i think um and i mean back back to the numbers i i, I think if we ever get to this point where people see that laws are not effective and not 
uh, and people really are being turned away at the polls, then, then people will revisit these type of laws and say, that didn't work very well. Uh, these, these laws are too restrictive and trying to clean up the voter rolls. You're like cleaning eligible voters off. What are you guys doing? And at that point, but I mean, that hasn't happened. It hasn't happened for going on 20 years now. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think what you said about 2000, that probably was a sort of a wake up, certainly at the national level, because I think, I mean, really two decades, uh, Reagan won like 45 states in 1980, 49 in 1984, then Bush won 40 in 1988, then Clinton won two landslides in 92, 96. I was like, there was never any question. I was like, people were used to just presidential races, just uh, poof, those are not going to be nail biters at all. And then all of a sudden you had, it, it came down to one state and 500 votes in that state. Uh, and, and people are just kind of stunned by that. Uh, but but that is why you had the Carter-Baker Commission. Uh, and it was supposed to be a lot of impeccable people from both sides of the political aisle uh, came forward with recommendations. Of course, the problem is in Washington, D.C., you could get most of the time when you get a blue ribbon commission together with the best minds, they put out a report. Uh, the leaders of both parties uh, do a big celebration and hail the report and the genius behind this report and these recommendations. And then they put the report on the shelf to collect dust. Uh, in this case, um, Congress didn't do a lot with the Carter Baker recommendations, but the states uh, took these recommendations and started uh, implementing them. And that's when these bipartisan recommendations became partisan because it was for the most part uh, red states and purple states that started putting these uh, laws into place. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think what would have been great in an ideal world is if you could have had um, maybe a sort of a John McCain, Joe Lieberman bill at the time, right after that, uh, that report came forward, the Carter Baker Commission, and, and to just like implement those laws um, at maybe at the national level and try to encourage states to do so as well. Um, I mean, I mentioned McCain and Lieberman, those were two of the most bipartisan guys who were in Congress at that time. Um, today, I suppose it would be good to see maybe uh, Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, if they could mm -hmm. come together. But even these very bipartisan members didn't rise to the occasion when it came to uh, election integrity issues and uh, what was fairly bipartisan sort of just dwindled into, um, as you said, just sort of just basic bomb throwing partisan fight. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say this is that, um, you know, right now over the past few years, we've seen um, various things uh, go in D.C. So, you know, about every month I see Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci go back and forth. And it, it's it's you know, obviously the clips, depending on which side of that debate you're on, are, are quite entertaining. And yet, if you stop and pause, you realize that nothing actually happens. It's just them two getting their flamethrowers out and making headlines. And so it's like, yeah, that's, that's kind of cute. But, you know, there's no, there's no there there. And so um, to your point about these commissions, you, you see this and you'll see, um, you know, people come in, they lie under oath, no, no penalty. So, yeah, to me, the, the, the larger issue around the voting, um, you have the issues of, voter suppression and, you know, getting votes. But at the end of the day, it, it seems like um, we should all probably step back and realize that fundamentally the reason this is so important is because the power we're handing over to these people. And then when you look at these people and how they act, perhaps we should re rethink a lot, a lot of other things because I'm not too sure I'm confident in, mu in much of them that, that are in DC right now. And so that's, that's, that's my personal take on, on, on some of, on some of the problems here is that the, the stakes are so high that you, you, it's hard to concede because if you concede, then you've subjected yourself to four years of Obama or Trump or Biden or whoever. So it's easier to, de to deny. And that actually points to a larger issue that perhaps the voter fraud uh, or suppression or whatever the angle is may or may not be a legit concern, but there's overarching questions about how we're being governed and who's governing us and 
um, do we really want those people in charge? And it seems that at least now, every four years, um, we're going to have uh, claims of fraudulent elections unless something changes, which ultimately is not going to get us anywhere. So that would be a, a larger problem that we, we society, again, are not dealing with, it, it appears. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, 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 one thing I get into uh, in the book about um, uh, even before um, the 2020 election, there was this group called the, they called themselves the Transition Integrity Project. Uh, and they were uh, war gaming out this, this scenario. Um, it, it, they were they were Democrats for the most part, or few anti-Trump Republicans uh, in the mix, but uh, groups that did not want Trump to win real election. Mm. Uh, and uh, there was a scenario in which they played out that war game in which Trump won the election. Uh, John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman in 2016, uh, then uh, role-played Joe Biden and came forward saying uh, he won't accept this uh, result. He thinks there was voter suppression, actually, and uh, he was going to call on the Democratic governors of states that Trump won uh, to hand over or send over a separate set of electors. And um, which, what was so interesting about that, I, and 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 to some degree, I mean, that, that got a lot of Republicans all fired up. Um, I mean, who knows whether Joe Biden would have done that if if it went the other way. Uh, but um, I mean, on, on some level, that's what Trump ended up doing afterwards. He he he, he tried uh, to get the uh, some state legislators in um, Michigan and, and some other states to uh switch over and send a new slate of electors to the electoral college and they told him no i mean uh mike pence uh you know we often hear mike pence courageously told trump no uh but a lot of people told trump no along the way and uh bill barr and so forth and state legislators were among them uh because they that's something that they really couldn't do under their current state laws and that's um I, I, but but i mean we we do have this problem with both sides yeah it it, it really is and uh i'm not doing both siderism which has become a, a term of late in media criticism but it 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 is something that that we've seen from from each party and yeah i mean back back to uh democracies really require the consent of the loser. And, and that's what we probably need more of going forward. Not just the candidates themselves, but the candidates' supporters. Exactly. Okay. Uh, where do you want us to point people to? The book, uh, website, social media? So we can link to all that in the show notes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Please follow me uh, at on Twitter, at FredLucasWH. Uh, you can also... Uh, find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's called The Myth of Voter Suppression. And uh, you can also find it on the uh, posthillpress.com website. So um, yeah, uh, please, I, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll uh, get a lot of answers and it'll uh, pull, bring or shine a lot of truth on a lot of myths that are out there. Okay, well, Fred, thank you for your time today. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks so much.